You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 20th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine welcomes his highest profile guest yet. Is rewriting literature in accordance with contemporary values anything other than pusillanimous vandalism? Clue? No. And would you still listen to any of this if a robot had scripted it? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests, Daniela Pelled and Enrico Franceschini, will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll have the first instalment of a week-long series reflecting on Ukraine's year at war. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Daniela Pelled, Managing Editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting and by Enrico Franceschini, London correspondent for La Repubblica. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, By way of light introductory banter tonight, I I thought we could do travel-related showing off, recent travel-related showing off, that is. Uh, Daniela, I will invite you to start the bidding. (laughs) Um, I took the... Um, the Uber boat to Greenwich yesterday. Okay. There and back. That's that's not that exciting. That's 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 in London. Um, but I mean, Greenwich is nice. Yeah, that's not North London. No, that's, <laughs> that is true. Well, yeah, you might as well have gone to the moon when you think of it like that. You, you've also been to Plymouth. I have been to Plymouth, indeed. I was in Plymouth um, last week. This was very exciting. I went to the Mayflower Museum and um, an exhibition on the history of the glorious city of Plymouth. And, and what, what are the highlights of the history of the glorious city of Plymouth? Um, maybe the Mayflower. <laughs> okay. Well, it's been all downhill ever since. Is that what you're saying? I mean, it's all, it, it's all, um, it's all a bit cons- obscure. My takeaway is that it has a lot to do with... Um, I'm here I'm going to offend anyone from that area of the world, but uh, I think I'm on safe ground to say boats. boats. Okay. Nothing wrong with boats. Boat heavy. Um, I'm just trying to think of a seamless pivot from boats to, there isn't one, it's landlocked, um, where you've been, Enrico. But it is a city of which we are both fond, as we have discussed in the light introductory banter slot previously. Yes, yes. I spent the weekend in Bologna, which is my hometown, by mm-hmm. the way, and I had the, the highlight was Tortellini, which is the famous food from Bologna. From, they say it's a, a food designed in the image of Venus belly button. <laughs> so, in, in, in fairness, if you went to Bologna and didn't get a great meal, you would feel shortchanged, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's almost impossible, I think. You can get uh, everything except the famous spaghetti bolognese, which <laughs> do not exist in Bologna. Um, well, I, before we move on, I, I should say, just by way of teeing up what is likely to be a recurring theme of Monocle 24 this week, I was in Munich uh, this past weekend at the Munich Security Conference, and yes, there will be tons more uh, on that in next week's Foreign Desk, and indeed the week after's Foreign Desk, and quite a lot in between. But 
Let's move on to tonight's show proper, and we will start in Ukraine. And moving the President of the United States in the most placid and propitious of circumstances is an astonishing logistical and diplomatic enterprise. Getting Earth's biggest security risk in and out of a country and a city under attack is a whole other headache. It was nevertheless endured today in the interest of anticipating the imminent anniversary of Russia's rampage in Ukraine by delivering US President Joe Biden to Kiev, where he met his Ukrainian counterpart part Volodymyr Zelensky. Here is some of what Biden had to say. The cost that Ukraine has had to bear has been extraordinarily high. And the sacrifices have been far too great. They've been met, but they've been far too great. We mourn alongside the families of those who've been lost to the brutal and unjust war. We know that there'll be very difficult days and weeks and years ahead. But Russia's aim was to wipe Ukraine off the map. Putin's war of conquest is failing. Russia's military has lost half its territory it once occupied. Young, talented Russians are fleeing by the tens of thousands. President Joe Biden speaking earlier today in Kiev. Um, Enrico, first of all, what what did you make of this as a a piece of diplomatic theatre? I I kept thinking that maybe at some point, roughly around this time last year, when various foreign potentates started making that journey to Kiev, I I did ask an American diplomat, and I think I was half trying to be funny, you know, why not, why doesn't Joe Biden go? And he just sort of scoffed and he said, you know, and it's kind of where I borrowed the conceit of the introduction. He said, moving the president of the United States across Chicago uh, is just ne- next to impossible. He said, yeah, you can't you can't put the president on a train and send him into a war zone. Um, and today they've done it. Yes, I read the, uh, something that my newspaper re- reported today, that there have been contacts between Washington and Moscow because to, oh, to, to have guarantees for the... For the visit and the, the warning from Washington was, uh, otherwise we don't want to start World War Three. If uh, God forbid a rocket falls on Kiev while the President of the United States uh, is there, and uh, in terms of diplomacy, I, I see some comments calling it unprecedented of a president going to a war theater like that, uh, uh, and it's a very big uh, symbol of what uh, America stands for. I, I saw a headline on the evening standard coming over here. And he said, uh, Ukraine stands, freedom stands. It's rhetoric, perhaps, but I think true. I mean, we should note, of course, that US presidents have visited conflict zones such as Iraq and Afghanistan, but they, those are places where the dominant military power at the time was the one they commanded, uh, which isn't the case uh, in Ukraine. Um, Daniela, the an aspect of this as a piece of theatre which must surely appeal to both Biden and Zelensky is the degree to which this shows up Vladimir Putin seething in his bunker at the end of his long weird table. Yeah, absolutely. And he's due to give a a keynote speech tomorrow. So this is a really uh, a poke in in the eye um, for Putin. But also it highlights something really important um, as we approach the first um, anniversary, which is the danger of war fatigue. I mean, really, mm. after the first um, lightning strike efforts of Russia to take Kiev and get a proper grip on, on the majority of Ukraine failed, I think that's been the worry, really, from the beginning, that uh, the, the, the world will forget that the pain of 
um, rising prices will be too intense, especially winter, a very, it's been a very expensive winter all around Europe. People will start to call for compromise and negotiations. And that would be the biggest um, benefit to a, a, a Russian victory or something close to Russian victories in Ukraine. So what better way to sharpen the minds of, of the international community by having the President of the United States in person visit Kyiv? Um, due tomorrow in Kyiv, uh, Enrico, is Italy's Prime Minister, Georgia Maloney. Are you surprised that she has been so solid where Ukraine is concerned? A lot of people have been because, of course, the coalition she leads... Um, has some people in it who are not merely a bit ah, about Ukraine, but are out and proud Vladimir Putin fanboys. Absolutely, like Silvio Berlusconi, who made a statement a few weeks ago of uh, almost a declaration of love for Putin uh, (laughs) and saying all the blame should go to to Zelensky. It was one of the few times in the last year I felt sorry for Vladimir Putin, I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, But... uh, um, Giorgio Meloni has surprised uh, some people. Uh, it was expected to a certain degree that uh, she would stand closer to Washington than to Brussels, so mm. to speak. So um, in, in Europe, she's been more critical of Macron, of uh, German Chancellor Scholz. She stands on some issues with Hungary or Poland, with the say the, the right wing of Europe and the more Eurosceptic uh, countries of the European Union. But she a, took a very strong Atlantic position, and uh, she said that uh, don't pay attention to what some junior partner of my coalition say. We stand with the United States. We stand with Ukraine. With Ukraine. She's going there now to show to show that uh, that Italy will support as much as other countries the war with aid, money and uh, solidarity. Berlusconi must have been delighted by the junior partner bit. Um, Daniela, just a final thought on this. Joe Biden is sending a message back home here as well, isn't he, about United States support? Because like almost everything else in America, this has become a partisan issue. There is a the hell with Ukraine tendency on the Republican Party, although in fairness, it has to be said there was a huge uh, American congressional delegation at Munich for the security conference, more than 50 representatives and senators, uh, including Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, both Republican senators, neither of whom had turned up to be wishy-washy about Ukraine. Is Biden nevertheless trying to tag the Republicans with being soft on Ukraine? I think there is, there remains um, a, a fair amount, really, of bipartisan support for the war on Ukraine. And you do have elements in the Republican side, as you do on the Democrat side, who are saying, well, it's time for, uh, it's time to step back. We don't want to be dragged into this war. And the usual, even some melding into sort of conspiracist um, views. But I think they remain um, outliers. And it's really hard for anyone to argue with 80-year-old Biden rocking up in the middle of a war zone, uh, being properly statesmanlike, um, it's pretty tough and I think it's pretty convincing.
Well, let's move along to Israel, where recent protests have escalated still further as Israel's government prepares to actually introduce the bill that the preceding protests have been about. By way of backstory, there's a whole Foreign Desk explainer from last week just sitting there waiting to be downloaded the very second you're done listening to this. But the long and the short of it is that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and the weirdo heavy coalition propping him up proposed taking quite a lot of powers from Israel's independent judiciary and awarding these to the government, current proprietor, Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, Daniela, this has aroused extraordinary passions in Israel and some astonishingly uh, grave statements from normally quite level-headed people. Uh, Was President Isaac Herzog overselling this when he talked about Netanyahu placing Israel on the brink of, and I quote, constitutional and social collapse? Um, it's pretty flowery language, but I think... <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's quite the tone for an address to the nation from the president. Well, absolutely. Not that he would take sides or anything. But um, no, this is it's extremely, extremely grave. The, the proposed changes would give um, the government serious controls over the judiciary and has um, important consequences for Netanyahu, not least because <laughs> the government could, a um, majority vote could overturn Supreme Court decisions. And he's feeling pretty itchy about his ongoing uh, corruption scandals. But it has um, it's laid bare the numerous fault lines um, in Israeli society that I think Israeli society weren't necessarily aware that were really problematic. The issues between um, the religious and the ultra-Orthodox and secular and ordinary people going on about their business. I mean, I think from the outside, people might see the, the occupation and the conflict with the Palestinians and the wider Arab world as the defining issue of Israeli society. But that doesn't figure in the lives of the vast majority of people. You didn't see these kinds of huge protests when it came to yeah, anything to do with uh, Palestinians or even proposal of, you know, the passing of laws that would affect Palestinian citizens of Israel. This is something that affects people. And I think it seems that people are waking up a little bit too late to realise that the occupation, militarization of society, sectarianism of Israeli society has an impact on its democratic um, process and that it's sliding massively, massively um, towards something akin to what uh, Herzog describes. Enrico, what's your read on why Netanyahu appears so completely heedless of the consequences? I mean, there there is a clip which I, I suspect many people listening to this will have seen because it has been uh, doing the rounds for obvious reasons recently, but it is, it is of Netanyahu about 10 years ago absolutely all guns blazing on the vital importance of an independent judiciary to, you know, any serious democracy and about how not having an independent judiciary was the, you know, a key indicator of tyranny, etc, etc, etc. Has he completely changed his mind on that? Or as Daniela suggests, is he just trying to keep himself out of the clink? Well, yes, the the difference with 10 years ago, it is now Netanyahu faces corruption charges. And so he wants to keep uh, the uh, the judiciary at bay. Uh, we must also uh, put putting things into context. 
other democracies around the world have had fights against the judiciary. I can think of India, for example, and then the, the United Kingdom, the United Kingdom, <laughs> Italy, um, where you have a new government and they try to say, ah, the judges are politically against us and Berlusconi will we mentioned before at uh, the 10 years of fight uh, blaming the judges and trying to to control the judiciary i mean in, in berlusconi's case he has interacted with many of italy's judges at a professional level well paying them <laughs> off you know <laughs> um, but uh, uh, yes netanyahu lives by the day so he, he lives f- for uh, you know keep himself out of uh, troubles and uh, it was very difficult to form a coalition so he's happy to be back in power maybe he did not expect such a huge uh, demonstration such huge protests you know in, in Israel there have been five elections in the last three years and a half and all these troubles might be a sign that we are going toward uh, another election at some point not too far away in which perhaps Netanyahu will you know walk into the sunset uh, I mean, it's been it's been weeks since Israel last had a general election. There, there must be a hankering uh, developing. But j- just a final thought on this, Daniela. It is those wider consequences as well that Netanyahu is gambling with. He he's had an extraordinary and quite weird, really, public dressing down from Joe Biden, uh, who delivered his warning via the unorthodox medium of Tom Friedman's unreadable column in the New York Times. But there is a thing here that. It's Israel's solidity in this respect that is one of the attractors for outside investors. It's one of the engines of Israel's economic prosperity. Does Netanyahu really think none of this is at risk? Well, I don't think it is particularly at risk as well. Israel's economy is doing fabulously. Um, The threats of war, social unrest... um, ongoing occupation, etc. None of this seems to have affected it. And for years, decades, the left have been warning that Israel would become an international pariah and economic investment would plummet and so on, unless there was a peace deal made with the Palestinians. No one even considers that anymore. And Israel is too important strategically and for security reasons for people, uh, for you know, figures in the international community to mind a little bit of democratic backsliding or even a lot of democratic backsliding. So I don't think there is a danger and I don't think people are, they may pay lip service to it, but I don't think there's any serious fears that this will affect Israel's economy or its international status. Daniela and Enrico, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you both later in the show. But now all this week we are running a special series on Monocle 24 looking at Ukraine and how the conflict has disrupted Ukrainian lives, society and the country ahead of the first anniversary of Russia's invasion which comes up this Friday. Before Russia's full-scale assault on Ukraine, places like Kiev Butcher and Kherson were not known for missile strikes or trench warfare, but as lively cities and or stunning holiday spots. For episode one, Monocle's Lillian Fawcett spoke to three Ukrainians about some of their fondest memories of their country from before the conflict. Aliona Hlivko begins this report speaking about childhood summers spent harvesting watermelons in Kherson. We had a whole watermelon farm, and and that was quite a common enterprise for some Ukrainians back in the day um, when you were trying to make an extra income. 
My name is Alona Hlivko. I am a political consultant currently based at Atticus Partners in London, formerly an MP in Ukraine and a participant of Ukrainian politics for over 13 years. So my grandmother and grandfather initially started that farm. They bought it off of someone else. And ever since then, every summer has become a trip for us to work on the farm, essentially, but also have some days off and travel to the beach because it was further down from the Black Sea and enjoy our summers in the sun. And the watermelons have really become quite symbolic for Ukraine. And I think that symbol has surpassed the borders after the liberation of Kherson, when you could have seen that Ukrainian authorities were referring to watermelons so much, and the media was putting that up as a logo everywhere. So the quickest, most efficient way to get your whole family, which would be, you know, my mom, dad, my brother, and then my grandparents, was to all pack into two cars and go on this little road trip. Sometimes, actually, because we're based in southwest of Ukraine near the Carpathian Mountains, there were two routes to take. Um, if we were going via Odessa, for example, we would go through Moldova, and back then we could travel without any border restrictions, essentially. Or you had to go all the way around through all the regions in Ukraine, and that could take up to 24 hours, if not more than that. Sometimes we would stop on the way, camp out just in some forests and woods and really explore Ukraine. And those trips were quite significant because I think, you know, those are the memories that you really carry on for the rest of your life. Some interactions uh, with your family, trying to keep the two kids entertained um, on such a long trip is, of course, a tricky one. But that's when we learned all of our games that had anything to do with languages. We would sing our songs. Uh, that's where I learned most of Ukrainian folk songs. Just my grandmother and, and my mom trying to occupy us. My name is Natalia Humenyuk. I'm a Ukrainian journalist. I, I'm based and I live in Kyiv. Kyiv is probably today one of the most vibrant cities in Central Europe. There are around 4 million people who live in Kyiv. It's generally, when you really try to describe it, the first things which are coming to your mind is saying like how green it is because there is a huge river separating the Kyiv for two banks and there are incredible amount of the parks and trees and churches. Especially within the last year, especially after the Euromaidan revolution, I think it became very, you know, very hype city. You know, it has probably one of the most known techno discos in the country. There was, you know, uh, quite a extraordinary restaurant business going on. The area near St. Sophia Cathedral and Hailevsky Cathedral, it's like the oldest part of the city. Uh, where there are a couple of churches, but also it's quite a hipsterish neighborhood. It became like that, but also historic. It's a bit on the hill over the over the river. I think it's definitely the, the most beautiful place. You know, if you really bring somebody to Kiev and want to show it, I think due to numerous reasons, uh, we Ukrainians like, have a bit of the habit of complain all the time and dislike things and find the troubles, small problems in everything. But I think uh, what I heard from many people, including from myself, that's how I feel, 
we all started to, you know, like appreciate it more. I think like everybody think like, you know, like I maybe didn't like it enough. I, I didn't see how pretty it is. I, I didn't didn't understand how precious every building is, uh, every street or so. My name is Olga Tokaryuk and I'm a Ukrainian journalist and I'm currently based in Oxford in the UK. I used to live in Kyiv for 20 years and that's the city where my daughter was born. Her name is Lubava and she's seven years old. And one of our favorite spots to go on the weekend was a park in Bucha, in a little town close to Kyiv, Kyiv suburb, very easy to reach, very green, very fast developing. So we would go there on the weekends and stroll in the parks and enjoy the scenery and enjoy also the proximity of a, of a river, of water. She would play on the playgrounds and we would just people watch and admire how quickly this tiny little town was developing. And so many Kyiv residents actually started to move there in the last years because the quality of life there was much better than in the capital. It was greener, it was smaller, it was very easy to reach. So then, of course, seeing what Russians have done to Bucha during the invasion and all the atrocities that were committed there, and people killed and houses burned, that, of course, you know, was very shocking and striking because that's not how I remembered that town and knowing that now it is different was so shocking. But then I know that it is rebuilding. It is rebuilding very fast, and I really hope that... We will be able to return to Bucha with my family and with my daughter and enjoy the beauty of this town again. Although, of course, there will be scars. And I think in the park that we used to visit, there will be a memorial to all the civilians who were killed in this town. That was Olga Tokariuk speaking to Lillian Fawcett. You're listening to the Monocle Daily. We'll have more from our panel right after this. Download the latest episode of Meet the Writers to join me, Georgina Godwin, as I talk to Sally Hayden, the young Irish journalist, about her award-winning book, My Fourth Time We Drowned, an account of the harrowing journeys taken by North African refugees seeking sanctuary in the West and how their fates are shaped by European migration policies. That's Sally Hayden on Meet the Writers, available as a podcast now. You're listening to the Monocle Daily and now. Augustus, how did you celebrate? I eat more candy. We knew Augustus would find the golden ticket. He ate so many candy bars a day that it was not possible for him not to find one. Told you it'd be a poker. What a repulsive boy. 
And now to the contemplate, well, the contemplation rather of the culture war fracas du jour, the battleground of which is the catalogue of Roald Dahl. Dahl contained, it may be fairly said, multitudes. He was the author of justly beloved children's books, including Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Fantastic Mr. Fox, and James and the Giant Peach. A World War II fighter ace credited with downing at least five Luftwaffe aircraft, a British spy, and an absolutely seething anti-Semite possessed of unreconstructed views on a variety of other fronts. The latest controversy involves the rewriting of some of his stories by his present publisher, apparently afeared that some of Dahl's narrative is affronting by contemporary measures, but then what isn't, etc. Um, Daniela, this has been done in consultation with people who build themselves as sensitivity readers. And isn't that right there part of the problem? Their job is literally going through things, finding stuff to get upset about. I guess it is. I mean, but, you know, not to downplay the fact that um, historically literature has got many things which quite justifiably people now uh, are getting upset about and perhaps shouldn't really be suitable for children to read with a tender uh, their tender age. But I think you need to set the bar quite high. Basically, the N-word, and that's it. Mm. Perhaps... Perhaps some other, perhaps some other words. Which well, I because this so. this this same question does get raised about the propriety of some of Mark Twain's books for exactly that reason. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. My son, I was talking about this with my ten-year-old uh, son yesterday, and he said that in some of the books at school, um, it was represented with an N dash. Okay, that's quite a good compromise, mm. as far as far as I'm concerned. Um, but that's those are the issues we should be addressing. What they're doing with the Roald Dahl book seem to be things like removing references to people being fat or ugly or horrible and also references to gender as well. No longer referring to females or turning some male characters into women characters. The, the Oompa Loompas are now gender neutral. It's kind of bonkers, really. And it's so bonkers that I do suspect that this might be this might have an element of the publicity stunt about it. <laughs> I, 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 I really do. Th- I really do think so because it's a kind of win-win. You know, you attract a woke audience, and then you also attract outrage. And actually, people carry on buying the books. Well, there was a not dissimilar fracas in the United States, I think, last year when some sort of hue and cry was raised about. Uh, in that case, a few minor tweaks to the works of Dr. Zeus. In this particular case, which we will come back to, they are making hundreds of changes to Roald Dahl's books. Uh, And yeah, with the result that the original uncorrected versions of Dr. Zeus's books started selling like absolute hotcakes, if that's a thing you're still allowed to say. Um, but, 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 But seriously, Enrico is, for example, ceasing to refer to Augustus Gloop as fat and instead calling him enormous, actually an improvement on anything at all. Well, no, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, um, There are some sensitivities are not only uh, understood but welcome, I think. Um, and uh, what's important is is to put things into a context. I, I suppose, particularly for for young children, that doesn't mean you cannot read Roald Dahl or you cannot read Mark Twain. You should read Mark mm. Twain, who's a great writer, and maybe a teacher in school or a parent uh, or the book itself uh, should have some explanation, some notes about uh, why. Uh, at a certain time a word was allowed and then is not allowed anymore but definitely uh, i would not say that fat uh, in a, in a novel like that is uh 
is a problem. But cause is there a thing, Daniela? Because I, I, I read all these books when I was a kid and I loved them. Um, and it's part of their appeal to children. And they have appealed to, I don't know, a dozen generations of kids now, which is an extraordinary accomplishment. But with the obvious exception of your 10-year-old, 10-year-olds are generally awful. And there, there, is a, there is a sinister, nasty, brutish undertone to Roald Dahl's books, which stops them from being the squeaky clean fairy tales that kids are usually otherwise served up. And is that not why they appeal? Absolutely. I would say that was the defining characteristic <laughs> of, of Roald Dahl. And also his, his works for, um, for adults as well, some of which I, I find completely unreadable now. Um, but that's exactly it. That's the, it's the dark underbelly of, of, of human behaviour and the fact that adults are, are fallible and children are horrible and they get their comeuppance in some really rather gruesome ways, as happens in many classic uh, fairy tales. So by taking away like, some particularly vile um, elements, I, I mean, I believe that even the Oompa Loompas had some edits um, because... He was accused of racism, which he, even Roald Dahl found um, a little bit too much. Um, but you have these, these mild edits. But then if you're just going to totally eviscerate the point of the books, which is that human beings are horrible, and that's actually quite comforting for a child to know that it's not just their imagination, <laughs> then it's just there's no point, no point at all. But Enrico, it's, it strikes me that there's another reason to object to this, which is it's not so much the words themselves, it's how they fit together. And when you, when you start changing the phraseology around, you are changing the phraseology of Roald Dahl around, uh, who was a great writer by any measure, and I rather suspect the people who are making these corrections are not. And, and writers choose words carefully. And it's not just the word, it's the way it relates to the words around it. It's the noises it makes in the reader's head when they read them. It's the rhythm of the sentence. It's it's knowing where a two-syllable word works where a three-syllable one won't. It's knowing where a hard K anchors a punchline in a way that no other sound is going to. That all gets lost when people start tinkering with it. Absolutely. You cannot rewrite great writers. They are great writers because they write well and... And it does not apply only to uh, children's books. I mean, there has mm. been lots have been said about uh, the novels of uh, Louis Ferdinand Céline in France, a well-known anti-Semite and who, who stand with the Nazi during World War II and paid the price for it, but writes beautifully in a way, maybe the, the, the most beautiful French language and crazy language ever ever written. And so you, you cannot uh, become an editor of someone who's a great writer. Or can you? Because that brings us nicely uh, to today's final topic, which is kind of a welcome to our new AI overlords. An emerging theme of 2023 has been the increasing accessibility of artificial intelligence tools, such as Microsoft's Bing chatbot and OpenAI's ChatGPT. Online folks attempting to amuse themselves with these tools have reported the discourse taking some weird turns, at which point it should probably be admitted that I did think of getting one of these chatbots to write the introduction to this bit, but after a few minutes of desultory research couldn't figure out how any of it worked and kind of lost interest. Um, Danielle, are you excited by this this bold new frontier of whatever it is? Oh, I'm sure it's going to replace journalism in about five minutes. Really? No, really not. <laughs> really not. Really not. I mean, it, what what strikes me about this, apart from my, my usual lingering fear that we're all going to hell in a handbasket and the machines are taking over and 
infantilizing human beings and it, it's all terrible is that what 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 emerges is that the more you persist in these conversations the weirder things get mm. um which makes me feel that there is an underlying <laughs> kind of like deep programming that is akin to humans underlying deep programming because quite often the deeper you get in a conversation with someone the weirder they get mm. so maybe that's it maybe that's what it this that's what this this whole See, that's what i was wondering because yeah. if, if i was one of the evil geniuses behind one of these things i i would totally load it full of stuff which is just going to screw with people i mean why would you not and, and that is basically the human psyche naturally <laughs> um enrico it, it does touch a little bit on what we were just talking about about the degree to which the authenticity of an author's voice is important and the idea that there is a human being creating whatever it is we're enjoying. Or could we actually get to a point, do you think, that people will just genuinely enjoy AI-created literature or music or art? Are we doing the equivalent of people 40 years ago that got the internet? That'll never catch on. <laughs> exactly. I mean... We are at the beginning of a new frontier there, so we should not underestimate. We don't know 20, 30, 40 years from now what artificial intelligence will be able to come up with. Now, as you said, there are pieces of conversation that can uh, scare us or uh, puzzle us, but uh, um, on the other end, you know, I remember 50 years, about 50 years ago, we had the 2001 Space Odyssey, the computer takes over the spacecraft mm -hmm. and is uh, unhappy because the astronaut in the end is picking his brain and, and making him become a, a child again. <laughs> and uh, But that has not happened yet, not in 2001 and not in 2023. So I suppose it's a, it's a slow process. Uh, there will be some interaction and integration between machines and humans, uh, I suspect, in the future. But I am an optimist, so I believe that humans uh, will have the upper end in the end. But, Daniela, you, you do raise a point, and... It is already happening. There, are, there have been attempts to get AI to do just basic wire service variety journalism, which so far don't work terribly well because there's always the terrible, terrible fear that one of these things will write something which will get automatically published, which will put the publisher in the dock and then sued for millions. So they think, well, we need to get editors to scrutinise this, at which point we might just as well get human beings to write it. <laughs> but is that always going to be the case? Well, it's comparable, I guess, to, to translation, online translation services, mm. which do a surprisingly good job in, you know, the sort of wide sphere, but absolutely have not um, replaced human translators yet. I mean, if anything does give me hope to be slightly optimistic is that human beings and language is that uh, um, we are sensitive and nuanced and with the potential for, for sensitivity uh, and nuance. And this isn't something that... Um, I believe you can program, although I'm sure that artificial intelligence will do basic tasks like writing children's books or writing um, some forms of literature or writing uh, music. I think any children's a... authors listening, please write directly to Daniela Pellard, <laughs> not to Monocle 24. I think, I, I think there's a level to which they, it won't be able to go that human beings will still be needed. So, in sum, we are all doomed, but maybe not just yet. Not just yet. Well, on that upbeat note, uh, Daniela Pellard and Enrico Franceschini, thank you both for joining us. Today's Daily was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Paminchu. And our sound engineer was Sarah Nickel with editing assistance from Emily Sands. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.